Michael Easley in contact. Abraham Lincoln, 1863, October 3rd. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Well, welcome again to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley, and I'm delighted that you joined us for the broadcast. Thanksgiving is, without a doubt, Cindy's and my favorite holiday. I think we like it, number one, because we're not scurrying around buying presents for all kinds of people and uh, standing in line and spending more money than we want to spend. But we're simply assembling some great food and uh, inviting some great people to enjoy one another's company to be thankful for uh, all the blessings, all the privileges that we have. Uh, Again, I don't know about your home and your background, but Thanksgiving is a rich time for us. And we have a number of easily traditions we do that you'll hear about a little bit in our broadcast. One of the things that I do, and you know, if you listen to me, you know I'm weird. I'm an odd person. But I actually like to go back and read some of our founding fathers. And I'm not necessarily a bookish person, but I love to go back and see what did Lincoln say, for example, about Thanksgiving? What were the founding fathers and our former presidents who often write proclamations for each holiday? Lincoln, of course, in a time when our country was war-torn internally, Uh, brother fighting brother, Americans fighting Americans over uh, the horrific issue of slavery, uh, the abolition of slavery, land, uh, the atrocities of a country fighting within itself, and the blood that was spilt and shed during those horrible years. Uh, Lincoln, without a doubt, a heroic president who suffered greatly uh, to try to lead this ambling country during that time. Uh, But beyond our thankfulness as a nation and If you're like me, you look at things and you're not always thankful. You get discouraged. The nation is not what it once was. Uh, Nostalgia can be uh, deceiving at times, but we do long for a day, perhaps, when things were different, when our country was less divisive, when we were more agreed as a nation, as a people, and especially as a people of faith, a people who believe in Christ. Well, the revisionists are always going to try and change history. That's a fact that we live in a culture that will always fight against what was once taught, whether it was textbooks or the political correct police, all the issues that we are indoctrinated by again and again and again. What about the believer? We live in a context, we live in a world that is fallen, broken, sinful, and run by broken and sinful people. How do we press on? How do we think about not just our country as being thankful people, but as being a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, This will be a two-part message as we think about Thanksgiving, a little bit from our American viewpoint, more importantly, from a biblical lens. We'll hear from Dr. Luke in chapter 17 about the one leper who comes back, and we'll look at his thankfulness in comparison and contrast to those who are absent who have nothing to say. And the lesson will be obvious. Are we the one who comes back? Are we the thankful people for all that Christ has done for us? Let's join the program in progress. Well, Thanksgiving approaches, and uh, 
Cindy and I, it's our favorite holiday for a lot of reasons. One, because there's not all the craziness of Christmas and presents and all the, you know, that goes on with that. It's just a meal and it's just having family and we try to have a household. We've been known to have 30 some people in our home over Thanksgiving when when we just had the uh, first two girls, when Hannah and Jesse were um, our only children at the time in Texas, we'd always invite the highways and byways people, we called them, people that didn't have a home or maybe single uh, women from the Wycliffe Center. We lived in Texas near Wycliffe headquarters, and a lot of those uh, women had served 20, 30 years overseas, and they were single and came back to retire in the uh, SIL headquarters of, of Wycliffe. And so we'd invite them over, and it started a tradition. And so we had all these people at our home, and they'd come over, and we had a tiny home, and we'd cook food, and we'd watch the football game and kind of, you know, drool half awake, half watching the game. And then uh, they were still there, so we'd pull out left of us, have a sandwich. So they'd eat dinner, and, and then about 10 o'clock, I'm like flossing my teeth, saying, you know, honey, it's time for these people to go home, you know. Well, it started a tradition, and um, about three or four years later, Hannah, who at the time was, uh, I guess, under, you know, seven or so, six or seven, said, you know, I just want to have a Thanksgiving with just our family. We said, okay, cool. So we did the turkey and all that, and it was the, it was the four of us, and we ate dinner, and 20 minutes there was over, and she said, this is really boring. <laughs> and so ever since then, we've had the, the, the big group, and we've always loved it, and it's been a, a great thing we enjoy, and we look forward to it each year. Um, there are certain comfort foods that you kind of have to have for it to be Thanksgiving. For example, I have to have giblet gravy. Now, I'm in the South now. I'm among friends. So some of you know what giblet gravy is, right? You know, and you got to have giblet gravy. So we have giblet gravy, and Cindy has her gravy because she doesn't like all the organ meat in there that that I do. Um, How many white meat fans do we have? The healthy ones. How many dark meat fans? Yeah, the the godly ones. How many... um, How many of you have cornbread stuffing? It's got to be cornbread-based stuffing. Yeah, and the rest of you use what? Pepperidge Farm, you know? Um, How many um, like pumpkin pie? How many like pecan pie? How many have to have both for Thanksgiving? Yeah. Do you put whipped cream on both of them? Yeah, yeah. Extra whipped cream. That's me too. Um, What about cranberry sauce? that comes out of the can, you kind of got to, you know, work it out. It's like this gelatinous glob from Mars, you know. You cut it with a knife, it doesn't change. You can play catch with the stuff, you know. And then the rest make the cranberry relish, the real stuff. Yes, the godly people in the room, yeah. And you, you, you've got to put the orange rind and, you know, food processor and pecans and some of that stuff that burns in there. And um, so everybody has this thing. We, we had friends in Texas, and I, I've never heard this before or since, but... This family came home because she made Thanksgiving noodles. Who ever heard of such a thing? Thanksgiving noodles, homemade. Some of you have, like, where does this come from? Like Albania or something? I mean, come on. (laughs) Noodles at Thanksgiving time? The the pilgrims didn't know how to make noodles. Anyway, um, beyond comfort food, you have comfort football. So we have comfort food, comfort football. Um, I'm the 0.01% of the population that actually goes back, and I read William Bradford's first proclamation of Thanksgiving in 1623. I've read every one I can find since then uh, over the years, and I'm always drawn back to Lincoln's. You know that Thanksgiving was not ratified until uh, 1941 in our country? 
as a national ongoing holiday. Prior to that, it was kind of hit and miss, depending. And most presidents, excepting a couple, Jefferson wouldn't do it because he felt the proclamation was too kingly, too much like the monarch from which we were escaping when we left England. Um, and so he wouldn't do it. But, Jeff, uh, but Lincoln's in 1863 is probably uh, the most poignant and best known. Uh, the backstory, however, is not often known. But an obscure woman by the name of Susan Hale, who was the editor of a publication called Gaudy's Ladies Book. And she also wrote a little well-known poem called Mary Had a Little Lamb. Well, she pestered Lincoln and wrote him letters uh, appealing to him to ensconce uh, Thanksgiving to make a proclamation that it would be a permanent holiday. Now, I won't read you the whole proclamation, but just a couple of paragraphs of Abraham Lincoln, 1863, October 3rd. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. While dealing with us in anger for our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy. He continues, I do therefore invite the fellow citizens in every part of the United States, also those who are at sea, those who are sojourning in foreign lands, those to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as Thanksgiving Day, of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up ascriptions justly do him for such singular deliverances and blessings that they also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience. What president in, in modern time would use the words our national perverseness and disobedience? Can you envision any of them? Commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife. What's the civil strife? 1863, the Civil War, which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes. Listen to that again. Interposition, ask God to intervene, the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and restore it as soon as may be consistent with divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. Can you imagine any politician writing something like that in the last two, three decades? Don't let the revisionists teach you history. Go back and read history for yourself. Don't let your history teacher in junior high, high school, college tell you otherwise. Go back and read what they wrote, not what the teacher says they wrote. Doesn't matter if you think these men are Christian or Judeo-Christian or deists. These people were more evangelical than most evangelicals are today. So we have, in my humble opinion, which you can certainly disagree with in a free country, we have a lot to be thankful for beyond comfort food and comfort football and uncomfortable proclamations. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have far, 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 far more 
to be thankful for than anything. If you trusted in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, you put your trust in him, what he did for you on the cross to pay for your sins, to die in your place instead of you on your behalf, to take the full penalty of your condemnation on himself, to die in your place, to live, die, be buried, and resurrected, and to offer a free gift of salvation to you and to me. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are given a free gift of eternal life. If you've put your trust in Christ, you and I have more reason to be thankful than anything else on the globe. If we remember it, remind ourselves of it, and we don't forget what he's done. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 17, verse 11. Luke 17, verse 11. A familiar story, probably a very familiar story, but an extraordinary illustration of thanksgiving that I hope, if you know the story well, you will know it better, and it might have a little more meaning as we think about this next few days in front of us and the holiday we so enjoy. Luke 17, verse 11. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a, le a village, ten leprous men stood at a distance, met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Father, as we look at a familiar story of an extraordinary work of God through your Son, and the extraordinary change of one person's life. May we evaluate our own thankfulness and gratitude that we have toward what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, the hopeless condition of a throwaway person. The hopeless condition of a throwaway person. In Luke chapter 17, we read this plea for mercy from ten leprous men. Now, a couple of things. Number one, how did they know Jesus this master could do these things. The, the message has traveled quickly in the ancient world. They didn't have uh, Twitter or iPhones or 3G or 4G or 1G. They didn't have anything like that. How did this information travel so quickly by rumor and word of mouth? 1993, I went to Nigeria, invited by a national uh, from Nigeria. And when we arduous journey to get there and drove hours and hours and hours in this old beater car and as we pulled into this village of 5,500 some Nigerians about half Muslim half Christian as we pulled into the driveway uh, road not a driveway but a gravel you know gullied road uh, no communication no phones no cell phones nothing uh, about two three hundred women descended on the car and started singing a Nigerian house of chant that had two English words, welcome, Michael, welcome. And we drove into the village and we stopped at a food area where the vendors would cook food. And within moments, this entire 5,000 plus compound knew a Baturi had come into the village, a white man. And it wasn't part of a group or an organization, just a friend of part of their village. In moments. So information can fa travel very fast without technology. So these lepers have heard about this Jesus, that he's healed people, that he's cured people, that he's multiplied loaves and fish, that he can walk on water. They've heard these stories. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Levitical law, chapter 13 of Leviticus, 14 parts of 15, Numbers chapter 5, if you want to read about the laws of leprosy. I wouldn't read it before lunch, but if you want to read it, 
it will give you some interesting details about the disease. We don't know precisely what leprosy in the ancient world was. It was probably not the Hansen's disease leprosy that we still see today in some parts of the world, even in America. But um, what we do know is the Levitical law distinguished between clean and unclean. They went into the Canaanite country, and uh, if, a, if a brick had uh, leprosy on it in a house, the Levitical priest was brought in to inspect it early home inspection, early black mold. They took the blocks out, and if it grew back, they tore the house down. And they had to take the stones outside the city to an unclean place and dump them there. If you had a lesion, a hair, uh, this type of thing on your arm, on part of your body, the priest inspected it. If he declared you leprous, you were unclean and out of the village. They did not understand viral or bacterial transmission in the ancient world, but they understood clean and unclean that God had given the Levitical priest as law. If you're unclean, you're outside the camp. Now, the interesting part about the miracle that we're gonna read is, um, the disease is not just a picture of this leprous throwaway person. The disease is an illustration of our sin condition. We all are spiritually lepers. Every disease, every blindness, every deafness, every lame person, every person who dies is an illustration of our sin. And when Christ comes back, uh, when he comes in, in the first century and exercises miracles over these diseases, he didn't come just to heal diseases. He came to heal the disease. And so the, the play cannot be missed. We're all spiritual lepers. We're all throwaway people. We all, the only difference is visibility. You can see the disease of leprosy on a person's skin, but you can't see the disease of sin in our heart and mind and soul and body. So the leper was illustrative that we're all leprous people, we're all unclean outside of a relationship with God, outside of a relationship with God's people. What do we see calling out for mercy? By the way, there'll be a time in your life when you will be, uh, when all the props are gonna be knocked out and you're gonna cry for mercy. It's very uh, maddening to think about living with a disease, cancer, chronic pain, lupus, MS, and that your life is one of crying out for mercy. But it is what the penitent sinner does. We're all spiritual lepers, and sometimes it's desperate. Verse 17, when he saw them, when Jesus saw them, he said, go and show yourself to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Catharizo, cleansed. We get the English word catharsis. Number one, the hopeless condition of throwaway people of which we all are. Number two, the compassion of Jesus, verse 14. There's no record of hesitation. There's no record of uh, discussion with them other than this one injunction. Go and show yourself to the priest. That's it. Now, from Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14 and following, the priest is the one, we might say, is the health inspector. He's the one who's going to inspect the home or the, the person's body. But the Levitical law did not say, uh, go to the priest 
if you had leprosy in the home or had it, you invited the priest to come to you. The only time you went to the priest is when you were healed. So Jesus is giving them a command that's out of step with their disease. And that's where the miracle hits the audience of the first century. A leper's going to go show themselves to the priest as they're going. They're healed. Because you, if you have leprosy, you don't go show yourself to the priest. You're already unclean outside the camp of people and treated as a pariah and the refuse of humanity. Go show yourself to the priest. In the Levitical law, the only time you went was when you were cured. Now, their leprous skin is now pink and healthy and whatever deformity they had is gone. The lesions are removed. You see, when you're a leper, your, your disease isolates you from community and puts you in an unclean community. When you and I are sinners, we are isolated by our disease from relationship with God. Went to my doctor on Wednesday for my four-month checkup post-surgery, and uh, he, he is a neurosurgeon. As part of, that's part of the uh, clinic where I go, neurosurgery. And he only has, uh, where he sees patients, maybe two days a week, let's say. And so the days you go, the, the waiting room is usually pretty full. And a lot of the people in there are in pretty bad straits. They might have halo brackets on. Uh, many of them are in wheelchairs. Some are profoundly disabled. There's a, um, like a shelter somewhere nearby, and they bring a van load of men and women who are in wheelchairs who are profoundly disabled. And uh, when I went this list last week, um, they were unloading a number of these men and women who were in wheelchairs. And... Um, one gentleman, he's quadriplegic. He had enough shoulder muscle to move his little joystick on his wheelchair, was trying to navigate. I mean, it's, it's, it's just the oxymoronic. The waiting room isn't even designed for people with wheelchairs. It irritates me. So I'm moving a couple of chairs out of the way so he could get his wheelchair in. And he, hard to talk to, but he said, thank you. And I, I just exchanged a few. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? And he says, oh, I need some more coffee. And uh, you know, I do too, you know. So we were laughing and, and talking. And uh, his attitude was very pleasant. He is completely dependent on other people. And there were some others in wheelchairs who were non-communicative. And I sat there in the waiting room going, their disease has isolated them from community. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad or guilty. I'm just saying, think about it. When you're that disabled and that diseased, you're isolated from, quote, the normal, close quote, world. We're all abnormal. It's just the visibility of the disease. Theirs is different. The sin condition of the leper is no different than the sin condition of you and me. Being in a wheelchair is no different than walking on two feet upright. We're all in that situation. Now these, after they are healed, they're no longer isolated and their disease is gone and they're back in a community. It's a great picture of the compassion and grace of Jesus. A number of years ago, I visited a two-star general in the hospital. He was about to face major surgery. His attending physician had come in to uh, talk to him about the procedure, and I was sitting there uh, listening. And his surgeon made a comment that cancer is no respecter of persons. I've often thought of that in respect to our sin condition. Uh, Sin is no respecter of persons. In other words, we're all guilty. We all are sinners. There are none righteous, no, not one. The good news is that the ground of Calvary is level. Uh, The base of the foot of the cross where Christ died for your sins and for mine is level ground. 
You don't have to be a little better than someone else. I don't have to be better than you. Uh, We need to stop the comparison game and realize we're all sinners. We all deserve hell. None deserve heaven. And it is by grace and grace alone that he calls, that he compels, that he chooses us. And then by faith, by trust, by believing in Christ to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, we are saved. We of all people should be the most thankful people on the planet because he loves you and he cares about you and he died for your sins. And if you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone, you've received the greatest gift of all time, his life for yours, eternal life with him, forgiveness of sin forever and ever in a community with his people and his kingdom forever. That is a great reason to be thankful. Next week, part two of why we should be the most thankful people on the planet. This is Michael Easley in Context.